this is the classical literature slot. Um, you may wonder if the study of ancient literature here at Oxford uh, has moved on since your student days. And any answer I might give to that question uh, would probably be deemed reassuring by some and worrying by others. In any case, I would be unable to uh, do justice to the wide variety of texts uh, which are studied by my colleagues and to the multiplicity of approaches taken. And that's uh, why I talk about my own interests, Roman philosophical texts. Um, Roman philosophical texts and Roman philosophy uh, uh, sets itself up to be underestimated in some ways. Um, Cicero, for instance, talks about his philosophical works as apographa, which, uh, at least in the 19th century, uh, suggested to some scholars that the best thing to do with Ciceronian philosophical texts is to translate them back into Greek. <laughs> Lucretius uh, talks about patrii Simonis egestas, the, uh, the poverty of the language of the fathers, which uh, is an obstacle for him when he wants to write about Epicurean philosophy in, in Latin. And uh, again, scholars have, have taken his word for it. But um, you might think, isn't Latin a language that is full of useful words to do philosophy in, except for one particular category, namely the sort of neologism that makes some of modern philosophical literature pretty impenetrable for the uh, beginner, and uh, which also makes uh, some of ancient philosophy, especially Hellenistic philosophy, uh, not exactly approachable. But are these terms a requirement to do philosophy? Then in Lucretius, we also find the idea that uh, there is a particular relation uh, between the context, uh, the, the content of what is communicated and the form in which it is presented. Uh, there's the famous Wormwood simile, where the, uh, the narrator, Lucretius, likens himself to a doctor who administers medicine, bitter medicine, in a cup and smears honey on the rim uh, so as to trick the child that is supposed to take the medicine into drinking it. And it took until 1989 uh, for someone to say, is it actually likely that we as readers are supposed to identify with the stupid child that needs to be tricked into absorbing the wonderful philosophy? And once you are there, you realize that these statements in the texts aren't actually mission statements which give you direct and easy access to the way in which you should read these texts, but rather they are rhetorically contingent within their context and need to be understood possibly as rhetorical strategies that uh, are to be taken on board, are to be appreciated, but do not directly give you a how-to manual how to use those texts. Now, one thing that fascinates me in particular is how Roman philosophical texts use ordinary Latin and traditional literary motifs for philosophical purposes. And I'm especially interested in moments when what is conventional and deeply familiar is defamiliarized, when readers are invited to reflect on the ways in which they have always spoken or written without giving it much thought. It's in those moments that Latin becomes a language to conduct philosophy in, 
that the Latin language's inherent potential in this regard is revealed, and that Latin writers become philosophers in a stronger sense, philosophers in their own right. So let's look at some passages. Text one on the handout. This comes from the departure of the Trojans from Thrace in the third book of the Aeneid. We sail out of the harbor, and lands and towns recede. Similarly, Scylla, on land, is left behind by Minos and complaining, describes the scene in text two from Minos's point of view. For him, my land recedes with me. And a bold version of the same motif is Tereus's departure with Philomela, also in Ovid's Metamorphoses. That's text three. The sea was moved closer with the oars, and the land pushed back. All three texts describe departures, and all three texts, uh, texts adopt an expression which conveys how things look as opposed to how they are. And how things look is described in factual terms. In the first case, uh, this might be seen as the poetic tropes equivalent of a dead metaphor. We too talk of the countryside moving past while traveling on a train without wanting to be poetic. In the second passage, through the sudden shift of perspective and Scylla putting herself into Minus's shoes, the conventional expression is arguably refreshed. And in the third case, the idea that one pulls the sea close with the oars upon departure is unusual and gives Tellus <coughs> Repulsa a concreteness which it might otherwise not have had. Why is ad motum freitum remis unusual, or why does it seem so to me? A possible explanation, which I offer without much conviction, is that when you depart by ship and look back to the land, you have fixed reference points, which you do not have when sailing or rowing out to sea, especially if there is not a landmass you are moving towards. Hence, the latter doesn't really seem to feel as if you're moving the sea closer, as opposed to moving across the sea. But I may be wrong, especially when you factor in the movement of the oars. Now, Lucretius discusses epistemological problems in book four of his didactic poem. And one of the tenets he seeks to defend is that all perceptions are true and that instances where our perception seems to be false or misleading arise from the fact that the mind misinterprets in itself accurate perceptual information. Some have described this as the CCTV view of perception. The camera does not lie, but the interpretation we place on what we see may or may not be warranted. Now, if Lucretius were to talk about departures like Ovid and Virgil above, how would we expect him to express himself against this background? I suggest we would expect him to distinguish quite clearly between how things look and how they merely appear, uh, between how things look and merely appear and how things really are. And to an extent, he does meet this expectation. He says, for instance, in text four, a ship in which we sail moves on while it seems to stand still one which remains in its place is thought to pass by, and the hills and plains we row by and sail by 
seem to be flying astern, videtur and videntur. Things are quite clear-cut here. If you follow the translation which I've given, the ship seems to stand still and the hills and plains seem to be flying astern. It would be perverse, given Lucretius's argumentative aims, to translate while the ship is seen to stand still or the hills uh, and plains are seen to be flying astern. <coughs> or would it? On other occasions, there are surprises. There is the description of a colonnade, and that is text five. Again, a colonnade may be of equal line from end to end and supported by columns of equal height throughout. And yet, when its whole length is surveyed from one end, it gradually contracts into the point of a narrowing cone, completely joining roof to floor and right to left, until it has gathered all into the apex of the cone. What is striking here, I find, is that having told us that the colonnade is really like it is described in the first two lines, Lucretius then describes the appearance of the colonnade in factual terms, which I've made bold. Consider also the purple patch to beat most others, Lucretius' description of a puddle, that is text six. But a puddle of water, no more than one finger deep, lying between the stones upon a paved street, offers a view downwards under the earth to as great a reach as the open heavens yawn on high, so that you seem to look down upon the clouds and heaven and you see manifest objects miraculously buried beneath the earth. What is striking here is that Lucretius does not talk about a view from a height appearing to open out, uh, although uh, many translations uh, do render the text in this way. What balances the expression that a despectus is provided, or rather what makes it clear that the expression denotes how things look only, is the reference to the depth of the puddle and the videre video locution with Miranda, which is traditionally used for dream appearances and apparitions experienced while awake. Still, Lucretius has chosen an expression which gives room in an avoidable and seemingly paradoxical way, given his argumentative aims, to how things look. Now here is part of the concluding remark for the whole section, and that is text seven. We see in marvelous fashion many things besides of this <coughs> kind, which all try, as it were, to break the credit of our senses. We are said to see here, what we are said to see here are the things which are really not there to be seen. To see here refers to what our visual experience is like, not how things are actually like. Again, you have Miranda there in the text, and yet Lucretius does once more seem to sail closer to the wind than was necessary. Why does he do that? Other non-Lucretian texts suggest that the Epicureans thought that in order to prevent the mind from placing false interpretations on our invariably true perceptions, we should get into the habit of epistemological caution, of looking long and hard at anything within our ken before, uh, before we form the view that this is how things really are. And what Lucretius seems to have done here is to take a well-worn poetic manner of speaking, that of talking in terms of how things look as opposed to how they are, and deploy it so as to modify our epistemic habits along the lines of what these other texts suggest. 
by giving the very real feel of misperceptions a look-in and urging implicitly the need for epistemic caution, for double takes, for a modification of the conditions under which we perceive some, something. Now, uh, on to some Virgil from uh, Book 4, and uh, that is Text 8. Um, Dido's sister Anna had been sent to Aeneas to ask him to postpone departure from Carthage at least until the weather improves, but Aeneas remained hard and stood rooted like an alpine oak, which is being battered by the wind. Dido then performs an ill-omened sacrifice. Then it was that unhappy Dido prayed for her death. She had seen her destiny and was afraid. She could bear no longer to look up to the bowl of heaven, and her resolve to leave the light was strengthened when she was laying offerings on the incense-breathing altars and saw, to her horror, the consecrated milk go black and the wine as she poured it turn to filthy gore. She told nobody what she had seen. She did not even tell her sister. Hoc visum nulli non ipsi effata sorori. Here the initial we did, highlighted, suggests that we are dealing with an instance of veridical seeing. While visum, uh, at the end of the extract, which frequently means apparition, raises the question whether Dido's imagination has in fact played a trick on her and she's experiencing an illusion or hallucination. In that case, the earlier vidit would refer to how things look to her, not to how things really are. In the end, it can only be one or the other, but we don't know which. The text is delicately balanced on the edge between those two possibilities and its effect depends on the reader sharing Dido's uncertainty about what she has seen. Now hang on to that thought that Dido's failed sacrifice might be something which was merely present in her experience, but not actually there. Near the end of antiquity, Saint Augustine rejected skepticism so as to be able to claim that faith is a necessary condition for attaining knowledge. <coughs> for him, Christian religion and Platonist philosophy were both striving for knowledge, Aristotle and Plato prepared one for Christianity. Augustine engaged with critics of perceptual experience who claimed that we can never be certain that what we experience, what presents itself in our experience, is actually an accurate representation of how things are. And partly in response to this, he pulled back and held that we can have secure knowledge only of three kinds of truths. Logical truths, there is one world or there is not, mathematical truths, three times three is nine, and reports of immediate experience. This tastes pleasant to me, for instance. And in connection with this last category, he comes to designate the whole of our subjective experience as a quasi-world, quasi-terra, which we can see even while asleep. And that's text nine. How do you know the world exists? says the skeptic, if the senses are deceptive. Your arguments were never able to disown the power of our senses to the extent of establishing, them, uh, establishing that nothing at all appears to us to be the case, nor have you ever ventured to try to do so. However, you have energetically committed yourself to persuading us that something appears to us to be so and so, and yet is different. 
Therefore, I call the whole that contains and sustains us, whatever it is, the world, the whole, I say, that appears to my eyes, which I perceive to include the heavens and the earth, or the quasi-heavens and quasi-earth. It is the man who recklessly approves, as a true representation of an actually existing world, what seems to him to be so, who is in error. You do say that what is actually a falsehood can, seen, uh, can be seen by sentient beings. You don't say that nothing can be seen. Every ground for disputation, where you skeptics enjoy being the master, is completely taken away if it is true not only that we know nothing, but also that nothing seems to be the case to us. However, if you do deny that what seems to so, so to me is in the world, uh, then you're making a fuss about a name, since I call this what appears to me world. You'll ask me, is what you see the world even if you are asleep? It has already been said, comes the reply, that I call world whatever seems to me to be such. Now, above, in text 8, uh, there was a possibility that Dido might have been hallucinating, specifically hallucinating the outcomes of the sacrifice, that what she saw was actually not there to be seen. Text 9, and in particular the highlighted last sentence, suggests that we can be certain, at least, of the world we subjectively experience as subjective experience, even in our dreams. I think it's interesting enough that the non-veridical sense of videre and videri is here promoted in the sense that it is used to describe experiences we can be absolutely certain about, experiences which, Arist uh, which Augustine is prepared to call truths. Now, one might ask to what extent this shift in usage is just a function of the fact that Virgil and Augustine wrote in Latin, and that in Latin, videre can be used to refer to veridical perception on the one hand, as well as to mere subjective experience? The answer to that question would have to be more detailed. It would have to bring in the Greek background, as well as an additional player, Cicero, who wrote the text Augustine is interacting with. The Greeks talked about matters like veridical perception versus subjective experience by using philosophical terms of art, like fantasia and phantasma. And it is Cicero who translated their ideas by using ordinary language, as we find it so skillfully employed in text 8, thereby relating these ideas to familiar experiences. It's one thing to say that what philosophers have always deemed a figment of the mind, a phantasma, is actually a true experience, and another to make this point by simply shifting between two perfectly familiar senses of the verb videre. Now, I know that you are craving for some Sextus Empiricus at this point, which would uh, <laughs> flesh this out, uh, but I'll have to keep him in, in reserve until next time. What has been noticed is that text 9 looks forward to Descartes' evil demon, the Deus de Captor, who presents a complete illusion of an external world, including, uh, including other minds to our senses, as well as to uh, modern brain-in-the-bat scenarios, and that's what the picture on the handout relates to, that is the idea that we might have perfectly normal conscious experiences, including representational experiences of something, without these being in any way related to objects or states of affairs in the real world. And the very modest point on which I'll end is that one way of telling the history of the development of such philosophical positions is through the history of the terminology used to express them, 
and that this terminology, as I hope to have shown, belongs to literature and philosophy alike. Thank you.